creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we have a special guest, Annette Altmans from The Men Project. Uh, she is founder of The Men Project, a human rights advocate, and serves on the board of Pepperdine University's Boone Center for the Family. She writes on abuse domestic violence, bullying, and has published in Teen Vogue and the OC Register and others. Recently, she came out with an article on when abuse... When it comes to abuse in the church. Let's see. When it comes to abuse, the church needs a paradigm shift in the Christian post. Nice. Um, And it looks like it's about how the church needs to make a paradigm shift from being a liability-focused organization to apologetic and taking responsibility. So and not, not just not, when not, they get caught. Yeah, not so this is not relevant <laughs> yeah. at all to anything that we see going on in the Christian world right now. So no, this no. This is completely irrelevant. So And we all know that like Christian organizations, they they put Jesus first and it's not like they have elaborate cover-ups or, you know, go straight to the attorneys over trying to make right. Yeah, so their screw-ups. Yeah. So this is this will be a fun conversation. Uh thank you for taking the time to be with us today and uh yeah, so why don't you uh, just introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, we've mentioned a little bit about your your passion and your your leadership at the Men Project. So why don't you tell us a little bit of uh, where you come from? Yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and what the Men Project is. Okay, well, first, I just want to say thank you, Allison and Nick, for having me. It means a lot to me to speak into people who are involved in the church because they have the ability to really be a a healing force for um, victims of abuse and for those who are struggling through various hardships, but they also have the ability to oppress and take power away from those that we really want to try to empower. And so thank you for this opportunity. I started the men project coming out of my own experience with um, emotional abuse. My I was married, I'm still married. We were actually able to uh, save our marriage, but it wasn't easy. And I don't necessarily recommend that, but I do understand the path to complete healing because Mm -hmm. that was the road that we chose to take. Um, Basically, it was an emotionally abusive relationship, but that's confusing to a lot of people because what is emotional abuse? And I have to say the church also often makes the mistake of not recognizing that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence as recognized by the Center for Disease Centers for Disease Control. It is one of the most damaging forms of abuse. And so emotional abuse, what what is that? A lot of people think it's raging, name calling, you know, loud put downs, things of that nature. Or you just not being able to process your emotions properly. Yeah. Very true. However, in my case, it was what I call covert emotional abuse. So if I break that down a little bit, overt emotional abuse, the obvious forms would be hyper control, 
financial abuse, raging, being very critical, things of that nature. And covert emotional abuse are the seemingly, I want to say seemingly more subtle tactics that render a victim even more confused than they would be in an overt emotionally abusive relationship. I don't want to minimize how confusing overt emotional abuse can be for Mm -hmm. so many victims. They tend to think something's wrong with them. I must be doing things wrong. That's why he's so critical or she's so critical. And in most cases, it is men who are the abusers for a myriad of reasons, but it's not solely men who abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically the, the victim will be very confused in either case, but even more so in covert, emotionally abusive relationships. And that's where things like reversing the blame, you know, blame shifting, Mm. uh, stonewalling a conversation, defensiveness, and a myriad of other tactics that I can get into a a little bit uh, in just a few minutes. But Basically, when you're in a covert, emotionally abusive relationship, you have a hard time discerning what's happening. And particularly in my case, my husband never called me a name. He's never called me a name. Um, He's not somebody who's raged. He doesn't do that. He was just very defensive and in his defensiveness would blame shift and he might be in denial or he might outright lie about something or more than he outright lie outright lied he would follow not follow through with promises so if he said he was going to be home at a certain time he would go golfing with his friends and not bother to call me and that's a broken promise and Mm -hmm. in covert emotionally abusive relationships the the abuser is usually constantly breaking promises. Yeah. It's not just a one-time thing or a, Oh yeah. So-and-so sometimes does this. It's constant. And if you try, they put it on you on top of it. Absolutely. Or they'll just go, I forgot. Well, we all forget. So it's hard to judge somebody for forgetting Yeah. when it happens in a pattern. It's a clue that something more serious is wrong. Any in covert emotional abuse on our website, we have a comprehensive list of terms and definitions that describe these confusing, manipulative behaviors and tactics that make up what we call covert emotional abuse. And um, for a, a victim, well, let's just say any one covert emotionally abusive behavior repeated in a pattern is enough to be destructive to a relationship. So let's say take lying as one thing. If somebody is constantly lying, the victim's going to pick up on the fact that their spouse is lying and it is destructive to the relationship. Or someone is constantly minimizing you, not valuing your voice, your personhood, your perspective that's enough to be destructive to a relationship. But when multiple covert behaviors are in play, which in most cases in a covert, in an abusive relationship, there are multiple behaviors. It makes it even more complicated for the victim to be able to discern the patterns. They, They end up internalizing a lot of 
the chaos thinking something's wrong with them. I remember and that's by design too. Uh, and that seems like it's by design too. It's not it just something by that design. happens. It's intentional. It's not just a, oops, I fudged this one time. It's constant and it's you. And, you know, I just did it because of you're this way or how dare you? How dare you t call me out on this? Yeah. What kind of person are you? <laughs> that's so true. Oftentimes, they their the abuser is intentional about wanting to win an argument at all costs mm -hmm. and other times the abuser is in such serious denial that they're they don't even know they're lying to themselves they their reality I like to say that they are coming from an entirely different world view where a normal healthy person has empathic qualities. They care about the other party. So in most case in cases, victims are very empathic. They care about their partner. Mm. They're trying to understand them. They're trying to, to make themselves better understood as well. And so they're very willing to self-examine and to see what their part might be in the complication or in the chaos. And it doesn't dawn on them that they are dealing with somebody who has an entirely different worldview, who's very low in the range of empath. They have oftentimes great empathy for people in the outside world, but zero empathy in their interpersonal, their most intimate interpersonal relationship. And that is what makes it so confusing to those who come alongside these couples because they see the abuser as somebody who is philanthropic, volunteer mm -hmm. for church, um, maybe an elder or a pastor, and yet they don't, so they don't see what goes on behind closed doors and how that person interfaces with somebody in their most intimate relationship, their inability to process emotions, to accept others' emotions, and to really validate others' emotions and to move through a solution. If I may, um, I like to use an analogy of a maze. We all know that when you see a maze on paper, there's only one pathway from the entrance to the exit. And so in a dream one day, God gave me the vision of a maze to represent a conversation. There, in a healthy conversation, you enter the conversation you mutually listen, and that is hard for people sometimes to listen, but we have to be quiet and hear the other person out. And it's a mutual experience of mutual listening, mutual validation, mutual respect, and then a desire to move towards a resolution or solution. Even if you agree to disagree, which let's take politics. Oftentimes couples have differing points of views on political matters. They'll agree to disagree, but they respect and love each other and want to hear each other, want to uh, validate their concerns. And it's not a diminishing, it's not a hostile conversation. But when you're dealing with a covert abuser, all, all the victim experiences is dead ends. They don't experience mutual respect. They might be respected in public by their yeah, in public. <laughs> public. They have their public face down really well. There's, there's that very well, exactly. Yeah. However, in a conversation where the victim will raise a complaint, for example, and yes, complaining is okay in relationships. 
So mm-hmm. often I hear the church say, don't complain. Well, you can't get to a deep deepening your relationship if you can't complain about the things that are sensitive to you or express your hurts, your desires, your hopes, yeah. your dream, whatever. And so authoritarians uh, don't want other voices out there. You know, they'll do everything they can to silence them, whether yeah. as a group or individual. Very true. And this happens in a relationship. So the victim deals with one dead end after the other. And the dead end would be things like covert behaviors I'm talking about. Lying on one hand, broken promises, blame shifting. Uh, False accusations are a big one Mm -hmm. uh, where the Mm -hmm. abuser will just raise something false to blame the victim for that has nothing to do with the topic. Now they're talking about something else and it's completely sabotage hijacks the conversation these are stonewalling defensive tactics to avoid responsibility and avoid accountability abusers do not want to be held accountable they do not want to be responsible they just want to stonewall overpower and control and win the conversation and that and the victim unfortunately doesn't have the emotional language, the descriptive language to be able to quickly identify these things. So they end up being slowly but surely groomed and beaten down into perceiving that the problem is themselves. Can you explain grooming too? Because I think people need to realize too, that this is a series of entrapment too. Um, It's not that you just all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, how did I fall into this ditch? Um, yeah. There's a there's 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 agency here. There's entrapment that happens on the other part. It's intentional. Yeah, and normal people don't do this, by the way. That's why people that are normal, a lot of this seems kind of bizarre and a little subtle too. I think because um, normal people don't use, you know, they make little mess ups. You know, maybe they interrupt or you know do other right. things accidentally. They're not necessarily trying to systematically dest- destroy an individual. But anyway, grooming, would you mind explaining that a little bit? Sure. It starts, it's, put it this way, the abuser is uh, very keen on image management, how they appear. And so they don't just come out the gate. In most cases, there are some violent offenders who are extremely controlling right from the get-go and they they retaliate in violence. However, for the average covert, emotionally abusive person, it's a subtle process where they might do inappropriate jokes. And, you know, jokes, we think, well, if I can't laugh at myself, something's wrong with me. But really, a healthy joke, a joke that requires true intelligence and wit isn't at somebody else's expense. It's able to make everybody in the room laugh because of their wittiness, their spontaneity, and their creativity. However, in an abusive situation, the joke is at the other person's expense. And And it's testing the boundary. That's right. And when the person, when the victim can't laugh at it because it was hurtful, then the abuser will say, well, everybody joked in my family and we turned out fine. You're just too sensitive. So now, not only was she put down in the first place, now she's too sensitive and something's wrong with her. She doesn't have a healthy outlook at humor. And yeah. it just starts with simple things like that or just 
one or two of the behaviors, the lying by omission. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's not an all at once situation, but it, as, as the victim begins to push up against those things, then the abuser escalates. Abuse always escalates over time. And Mm so more behaviors come into play because if you confront an abuser and say, stop joking about me, I don't like it when you say I have thunder thighs or when you (laughs) say something about my physical um, appearance. Yeah, or hey, you've gone too far. Like let's let's turn it down a little bit. Exactly, they might stop joking, they might actually stop joking, but they'll switch to another behavior. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes it confusing because, or that's one element of why it's confusing because they have the ability to stop doing what they're Mm -hmm. called out on, but they'll just switch to other ways to minimize and overpower and make the victim feel lesser than like something is wrong with them. And oftentimes it's not really intentional on the abuser's part he or she really believes that they are better than the other person. Oh yeah. So yeah, they're the world. That's what you were talking about worldview. They know what they're doing. They just think that they're better than other people. So they, they can do it. Exactly. I, I like to say that all narcissists are mm-hmm. abusers, but not all abusers are narcissists. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you raise these, if you in a healthy person, I mean, we all grow up with bad habits Um, from our family of origin and relationships along our path in our adult life. And so we learn things, some things we pick up that we shouldn't and other things we pick up that are great. Um, But a healthy person, when they're confronted about these covert abusive behaviors that they're employing, if, if you just say, this is hurtful, you're minimizing me, I don't feel heard, you're not valuing my voice, I have something to say here and I need it to be valued, I need to know that you hear me, when you have, when you demand resolve in that way and really point out that it's harmful and I feel abused, I feel minimized, I feel erased, I feel ignored when you are able to articulate that or when a therapist is able to articulate that with, with um, in a couple setting, a healthy person will say, gosh, I never thought of it that way. I don't want to harm you. I don't want you to feel that way about yourself. I'm going to... St- do my best to stop that. And they have the ability to stop it. And they generally speaking will stop that behavior immediately. That's not somebody who's entrenched. That is not somebody who's likely a narcissist or, I mean, where narcissist is a spectrum of behavior, but it's not somebody who is, has an entirely different worldview. They have a desire to want to improve and grow. It's a genuine oops. And even if it's a little bit of a habit, like so-and-so gets, um, I don't know, super cranky and this is the dysfunctional way they express it. Like that's, that's a world of a difference than kind of something a bit more, huh, how can I undermine this person so that I get all the things and then I look pretty good because I am awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, awesome. Oh, how weird. Okay. So let's, let's go back because I think I think covert and emotional abuse is very difficult for people to understand until they've actually been in it. And I mean, something people need to realize too is people who have um, been in situations that are physically abusive, um, oftentimes the stuff that hurts them more are, are the emotional covert portions of it. Um, so oftentimes there's an overlap too. 
Um, and I can say for me personally, I've definitely experienced both in different contexts. So going backwards, what is abuse itself? What are the pillars of abuse? Oh, well, the pillars of abuse, I, I identified as a way to kind of size up the character qualities of an abuser. Like I just said, what is not an abuser is somebody who's willing to say, I made a mistake, I'm going to try to improve. But somebody who is entrenched, who's really has a different worldview, I identified the pillars of abuse. And the first one is a faulty belief system. So that might be something like patriarchy can be an example of a faulty belief system where they actually, if it's a male, that's the abuser. He actually believes that men are in, they're more valued, they're more intelligent, they're more capable, and they are more responsible for attaining the benefits of the relationship. They're more deserving. It's a faulty belief system. Hmm. Then the next one is image management. They intuitively know something deep down isn't right. They're not connecting on an emotional level. They don't really know how. And so they work extra hard to appear really stellar in the broader community, in their circle of friends, um, in their broader family, etc. And so they are very keenly aware of how they are received by others. And they do things to build themselves up and so that others will affirm them and believe the best in them. That's, it's a lot of pressure when you think about it coming from what they have to manage to be so dysfunctional behind closed doors and to work so hard to appear otherwise in the broader community, but they're very successful at it. And if the victim, Mm -hmm. like, for example, were to speak out against them, it generates a lot of retaliation and sabotage Mm -hmm. and undermining the victim, lying about the victim and so forth. Um, It's context grooming, essentially. It's I'm going to make sure everyone around the victim you know, doesn't catch, number one, doesn't catch or suspect what I'm doing. And if the victim comes forward, they're going to go nowhere. <laughs> exactly. Because she's already been undermined at that point. Or yeah. if it's a female, but it's female. Will, so the victim will be undermined. For example, it might be something super subtle, like in public, the abuser might say, my wife is so awesome, blah, 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 blah. And then when there's a conflict, when the victim actually comes forward and seeks help, the abuser will say, well, the last I heard, it took two to cause a problem. And I don't hear her taking any responsibility for herself. She solely wants to focus on my problems. So that undermines the victim. It makes the victim look like they're the one who has the problem. And they're very good at saying things like that. Then the third pillar is entitlement. They Mm -hmm. truly expect preferential treatment or double standards in the relationship. (laughs) Um, I've seen you two hug, so it's making me laugh. I'm not laughing. (laughs) But they believe that they're deserving regardless of merits or what someone else's need or well-being is. My husband used to say, I thought you were abusing me because you weren't submitting. You weren't doing everything I was asking. So I thought I was the abused person in the relationship. Mm. 
it's really believing that they are deserving of having their needs met. That's entitlement. Yeah. Yeah, And if you're not meeting those needs, you're the drama queen. Like, you know, there's, they're awesome. And you really should acknowledge that. Or or worse. I mean, I've I've had guys say my wife's cold. They didn't use that specific phrase, but that was kind of the idea. And I'm like, maybe you're thinking about this. Of course, I didn't have the resources at the time, but I'm like, that's a very weird way to talk about your spouse. But that's, I see that sort of thing kind of a lot, unfortunately, in in Christian ministry and in Christian families. It's always the woman's fault. It's never the guy for being unreasonable or sexist or anything like that. I think too, people, I think in the wider context, sometimes mistake entitlement for confidence. And so sometimes that also kind of helps them um, do some image management. All these are related, but image yeah. management as well, because they people look and say, "Oh, well, they they were so confident about blah, blah, about getting their way that you know they they must believe in their heart of hearts that they're right." It's like, yeah, they do. Um, yes, they told you a lie to your face, and yes, you might be believing it right now, but it's the confidence is there because they think they get all the things. Like, <laughs> no, that's so astute of you because these pillars intertwine. You can take any example of an abusive couple and examine it under this screen Mm -hmm. of these pillars. And you can see in any given situation how a faulty belief system, how image management and entitlement all weave together and create that dynamic. So it's not just that only one or the other, all three are present. And then I like to talk about the fourth pillar of abuse is what happens when double abuse takes place. When those who come alongside the victim and the abuser don't understand, they're either ignorant or they're, they're either inadvertently or intentionally suppressing the victim's voice. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I say, cultural, prejudicial, or hierarchical preferential treatment that Mm -hmm. goes to the abuser. And so that's when one expects the abuser or others provide preferential treatment to the culpable person because of their social viewpoints. Let's say, well, they share the same denomination in their Christian faith, Mm. or they have the same political beliefs, or their higher status. Oh, well, I can't imagine that elder ever doing that to his wife, you know, or It could be simply the proximity to your social circle. Well, I've seen this person. I've been a friend of this person for 20 years and I've never seen him or her be abusive. So I, I refuse to believe it. And it's these, it's this preferential treatment. And and we see it in academia too. If it's a professor Hmm. who's guilty of sexual harassment, the university rallies around the professor and exacerbates the victim's trauma. Mm. And this is just a couple ways that we see double abuse play out, which is another topic that I'm passionate about. Here's another thing I'm wondering about, and I'm actually trying to mold this over in my mind right now too. Um, Do you think that, and maybe it hits on a little bit of your article as well. Do you think some of this kind of hits, and maybe we'll talk about more too, I don't know. In addition to what you said that the flip side being that there's almost a default setting against the victim as well. So not only, you know, maybe the perpetrator has all this other, you know, advantage, you know, over and against the victim and they pick their victims pretty well, you know, are they yeah. um, oftentimes uh, in some context, um, are they a person of color? Are they female? 
Um, are they young? Are they, they are they young? Are they very young? Are they very old? Are they um, are they new? You know, just they go through the list. Are they do they stand out in some way? But in another sense, sometimes it seems like there's a default against victims too, because I find it odd that people oftentimes go almost out of their way to you know, kind of explain away a perpetrator's behavior, identify with them, kind of project their own normal thought processes onto someone who's very pathological versus not extending that same grace, I would say, to a victim um, that comes forward. So is there a certain sense in terms of maybe the default being seeing victims as liabilities um, because they're causing, um, in their mind, uh, causing the tension versus um, trying to get free of something like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out. Well, I mean, I still try to figure it out too. Yeah. All the studies show and uh, important books that have been written on abuse. For example, Judith Herman is a renowned physician at Harvard University who wrote a book, Trauma and Recovery. And it is, it focuses a lot on how victims don't receive the support, the support goes to the abuser and the victim is completely isolated. That's been my personal experience. There's countless stories. There's other podcasts where it's only stories about how victims were doubly abused, Mm -hmm. how their families didn't believe them, or they judged them for separating or divorcing. Um, There's just a lot of criticism and judgment that goes towards a victim because they're stirring the pot they're disparaging their spouse. You know, that's what happened to me. I, um, when I finally came forward and said, I had such a hard time describing what was happening, but I did, I think I did a pretty darn good job articulating what I was experiencing. And even so I went to my leaders of my couple's Bible study of 14 years and, and they had seen me getting ill. Like I had autoimmune illnesses. I had a low white blood count. I was nowhere to, yeah. The stress of the relationship was making me very weak and frail. And I couldn't carry the physiological burden of it anymore. And even seeing me in, in the demise of the deterioration of my physical health, they still, judged me for separating from my husband. They judged me for stopping couples therapy, which I do need to make a point. Couples therapy for these couples is contraindicated. It is not healthy. And a lot of therapists don't know this protocol, even though the experts, the true experts in the country who work at domestic violence agencies and who write on the topic of abuse and so forth, and who conduct studies, they recognize that couples therapy is only leads to more trauma for the victim because Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to unravel these covert emotionally abusive behaviors and to stop them when they're hearing one person the abuser who's willing to lie and distort the truth. And then the victim gets placed on the defensive, which she's already probably developed post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had in my case developed PTSD. And I didn't realize that, but that was one of the reasons why I was having a more and more difficult time discerning what was happening because my thinking became fragmented, uncontrollably shaking. 
I, my physique, my physiology was deteriorating. And so it just made it physically and emotionally more difficult to discern what was happening and made me vulnerable. Victims with PTSD become extremely vulnerable to developing complex PTSD, which happens when oftentimes double abuse leads to complex post-traumatic stress because now the victim, it's, it's a sense of learned hopelessness mm. and despair where they suddenly feel there's no hope for a way out or through. And no. it doesn't mean they necessarily want a way out. In my case, I was hoping that by confiding in people who I knew loved my husband and loved me, that I would actually get help finding the appropriate place to unravel what was too much for me to handle on my own. And it was, yeah. (laughs) And that's very common. Double abuse is, I like to say, when victims finally find the courage to reach out or to speak up about, reach out for help or speak up about their experience, rather than being believed, they're often criticized which I was, I was criticized for separating. I was criticized for stopping couples therapy because then I, I couldn't possibly have my heart into it if I was willing to do those things. They judge them wrongly. They minimize their point of view. They interrogate them with pointed questions that places the victim on the defense. In my case, they issued me an ultimatum. Jeez. That if I wasn't back in couples therapy within 90 days, I would never be invited back to this group again. And we had traveled the world together, been on mission trips, broken bread together, met every week. And I mean, it was shocking to me. I was utterly shocked that the male leader of the Bible study would call me on the phone, tell me in advance, it's going to be a difficult discussion, and then give me the ultimatum. And I knew I couldn't comply with that because we had already been to numerous couples therapists and they are not equipped. I mean, finally, I, we found somebody years later after a lengthy separation who is an expert on this topic, mm-hmm. but a Christian, and actually I'll give him a plug. It's called the Marriage Recovery Center and it's Dr. David Hawkins who deals with these complicated couples. And I just want to say one other thing about couples therapy. If a complicated couple or a toxic couple or a high stress couple, a high conflict couple comes to a pastor for help, it's a dead giveaway if they've been to multiple therapists and their problem hasn't been solved because therapy doesn't solve completely changing the heart and mind of a covert abuser. That's, that's deep therapeutic work. Um, which is what they did at the marriage recovery center for my husband. And it takes years. And in any abuse book that you read, that's truly our experts. It talks about how much time it really takes for an abuser to change his worldview to being somebody who's empathic when they've not been empathic. It's not a simple thing. So an apology is not enough. You don't then tell the victim you need to forgive them. It takes true repentance, true changing of the ways, true demonstration over an extended period of time 
tangible evidence of change. Yeah. 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 Show me the money. Yeah. yeah. Show, show me the receipts. Accept my apology or else. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised how much I was pressured to forgive okay. and just forget yeah. when I was a shell of my former self and yeah. there was no, and I knew all the ins and outs. I knew so much of what I had endured and experienced and outsiders are going to come and tell me I need to forgive when they're not remotely aware of the longevity of the pain that I had experienced and the deception. And I mean, there was never any infidelity, but there was a multitude of other issues that I felt were very betraying of my personhood. Yeah. And by the way, people like they will count on it. They will come and tell you to have you forgiven so-and-so or tell you to forgive them. Even if you are the nicest person um, privately and publicly to the abuser, even if you go over time to do your own like image management, like they will come. Um, and it's probably because the abuser's um, kicking up a fuss because they didn't get their way. Like, mm-hmm. so just, just saying. And people's <laughs> tendency to want to lay the responsibility on the well, victim. I yeah, like to use yeah. the example, if a child, covert emotional abuse is the type of abuse that is present in any relationship. So sexual harassment has covert emotional abuse. Yeah. Bullying has covert emotional yeah. abuse. Domestic violence has covert emotional abuse. Child molestation has covert emotional abuse. It's all the ways to manipulate and to overpower a victim. And I like to say that if you had a simple case of bullying on the playground and the child comes to you and says, these kids are bullying me. And then the, rather than intervening, which we need to do on a child's behalf, the teacher will say, well, just go play on the other side of the playground. So now the child is burdened with the responsibility to fix it by playing on the other side of the playground as if, if, if anything that child could do could stop the bullying. It has nothing to do with that. The adult needs to intervene with the bullies and really get to the bottom of what is happening there. But so often we just want to give instructions to the victim. Well, have you tried this? Well, have you tried that? Well, I've seen you be um, harsh at times. Do you think (laughs) because you're not, you know, that sort of thing. And they're just so willing, I find, to either play neutral, which only benefits the abuser, or to judge the victim because the victim is the one who's creating the issue. And therefore it must be that the victim is over complaining or too sensitive or um, the, you know, any number of excuses that you can attach to that. Yeah. I saw, I mean, in the case of uh, what happened over the past, well, apparently this, the revelation of everything finally coming to light within the past year or so with uh, Ravi Zacharias and all of that sort of stuff. The one thing I continually saw from from people, supporters of Ravi, was, uh, oh, this woman's an extortionist or or everything Seriously. was about her character. And, and that's the go to. Like I yeah. saw people that like, well, why, or even with some of these women, why are they coming forward now? I'm like, if you did just a simple go- Google search, you would have known they already did. And the fact that that was their go to, that was their default to decide ahead of time that the victim just X, Y and Z versus yeah, maybe, maybe they're telling the truth, you know, it doesn't mean don't verify, but the fact that the default is against the victim, is very telling. Well, it's like, apparently you have to wait till someone dies for some people to actually be heard. And that's, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying sometimes it's like, you know what, look, that's bad. Like when, when the legal system will come crashing down, because let's face it, there's a lot of money and a lot at stake. 
you're, you're an ant in the ocean. Okay, I, I'm going to get swamped and drowned and then I'll have no reputation, my family's name and all that sort of stuff. It's like, there's no, it's just, yeah, I, it, that never made sense to me. Just this kind of, e- it's, I shouldn't say it's easy. It's, it's hard for some people to wrap their mind around the fact that they were manipulated or they, they bought into the lie, you know, and yeah. stuff like that. Then you see the pillars of abuse act yep. out in the institutional setting, mm. yep. the preferential treatment, the denial, the entitlement they feel they have, the yeah. faulty belief system, the image management. You see it all play out at an institutional level, which makes it so much worse. And yeah. that's why I wrote that article about the church needing to make a paradigm shift mm. rather than protecting yourself from liability, most victims only need an apology. Yeah, seriously. And after they want to be validated, they want to be heard. They don't want to be abandoned. They want to be loved. And when you say I made a mistake, it usually is all that they're seeking to know that you really care and you're not going to double down with attorneys and avoid taking responsibility. So I'm really thankful for in the case that you just mentioned that they did do an open letter that recognized how they slandered the original victim Mm -hmm. and so many other ways that people were hurt. Uh, It was too little too late, but at least they ultimately are engage and I think it has a lot to do with it. They engaged Rachel Denhollander and yeah. other organizations to really uh, that they decided to engage outside organizations to um, reveal to shine light. I love Ephesians 5 12 through 13 that says to bring all matters into the light, even mm-hmm. the unspeakable, because that which is illuminated can then become light. Because that's what we need to do. We need to shine light on these things instead of covering them up and keeping them in the shadows where the abuse thrives. And that's what double abuse does too. We keep it in the shadows instead of really listening and hearing what is the story? Let me help this victim get to the bottom. Let me just listen. And we actually, I don't know if you have time to talk about it, but to avoid causing double abuse, I developed what's called the healing model of compassion. Now let's go for it. And um, let's go back. Um, let's give a um, definition of what, what is double abuse um, and how it fits in with your pillars. And yeah. And then let's go from there. Let's do that. Okay. Double abuse is what I I said, when a victim reaches out for help, they're criticized, they're judged, they are uh, minimized, they are given, uh, they're interrupted when they're trying to tell their story, they're interrupted with pointed questions, they are basically not listened to, sometimes they're sometimes are given ultimatums as they were in my, as I was in my case, or gaslit is exactly right. There's, How do you know they're stalking you? Hmm. <laughs> exactly. So many ways that they minimize the victim and in so doing, they exacerbate the victim's trauma. And so often we see that victims actually become ostracized by their family, their church, or their professional community. So it t- goes a step further in my case, because I did not comply with the ultimatum to get back into couples therapy. They ostracized me. They never spoke to me again. After all those years, I never got a phone call from one 
other than only one couple stood with me. No other woman ever picked up the phone to see how I was when we were separated. They knew I was really ill and was in and out of the hospital. Not a single phone call. Even after my husband and I did the article for the Orange County Register, nobody came forward and apologized or said, gosh, we got it wrong or nothing. It's, it's, they're just so entrenched in mirroring for each other that their viewpoints were accurate and blaming me for being unstable or whatever they were saying. Otherwise they have to come to terms with that. Their gut was wrong, uh, that their worldview was perhaps wrong and that maybe they got tricked. Like no one wants to think that they, you know, or or that maybe they were harsh because they were very harsh and that's evil hard to face. Yeah. No one likes to think they bought into the lie. Yeah. And then, I mean, all the horrible things that they did, because humans don't just do horrible things to people. They usually have layers of rationalizations or beliefs about the person that would make them a special object of their behavior. The ends justify the means becomes a Christian virtue when it is a cancer. Yeah. Hmm. So true. They they also um, said they would only meet with me because I was pretty shocked that they would just terminate the relationship. And so through the one couple, I said, I'm just concerned that we've all been allowed to bring our issues and mm-hmm. we've encouraged each other and been there to support each other through our trials and tribulations. Why am I being singled out to not be yeah. allowed to share mine? And she came back and said, they'll meet with you. They'll have lunch with you, but only if you promise to not disparage your husband. So basically they criticized me for gossiping. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, they went out into the broader community and told other people to not talk to me either because they wanted to drive me back into couples therapy. So yeah. now as a victim, I was totally traumatized by this whole experience, knowing that they were gossiping about me in the broader community and punishing me and trying to force me to do something that I intuitively knew wasn't right. And to lose that kind of support really exacerbates a victim's trauma. And that's why it's so critical that churches understand that most victims will go to their pastor before they'll go to a domestic violence agency. They don't even understand that they're in an abusive relationship. And so to lose support from their church, to lose support from a place that they believe is going to be safe, when that happens, it's devastating for them. Double abuse also can be things like disconnecting from someone or just saying, I can't talk to her anymore because I give her advice and she doesn't listen to me. Yeah. You know, doesn't giving, do what I say. Giving advice is, is a form of double abuse because, well, I'll go into the healing model, which explains well, why that. And when you say give advice is a form of double abuse, you're not saying that anytime you give advice that you're, you know, you're being abusive. You're saying it's, it's very specific. Um, can you give some examples maybe so people can understand yeah, advice a, that is abusive? Yes. I need to qualify that. Yeah. Let me put it this way. In order to communicate with a victim who's disclosing their abuse, you want to be a person of compassion. And yet so many of us don't understand what compassion really looks like, but a victim is acutely aware of the compassion that they need. And so when you steer veer away from compassion, you're teetering on condemnation. So for example, if someone 
one of the women was saying, well, I need to be making him dinner every night when we went out three nights a week and I would cook the other, like, what does that have to do with anything? And giving me advice. And when I didn't follow that advice, I was, something was apparently wrong with me. And that advice advice was very, yeah. It, and it was very triggering. Like how does she, she does not know my situation. Only I know what goes on behind closed doors. Mm. So giving advice, unless I asked for it, is not helpful. What a victim needs, the healing model goes like this. We listen. We listen over and over with a closed mouth. We don't assume we know better. We don't interrupt them. I had, I had the hardest time telling my story to my Bible study leader because she wouldn't be quiet enough to listen to me. She was full of interrogating questions pointed in, and, and demands and things of that nature. So I never got to really tell my story, which was very traumatizing. A victim needs a safe place to process out loud what they're experiencing, to sort it out and to have a safe person willing to listen and just sit with them. Sometimes we think we have to have answers, um, especially in a pastoral position or in a counseling position, we think we have to have answers when what a victim, what is sometimes the most healing experience is to just be listened to. Mm -hmm. And then the next step in the healing model is accept, accept the story to be true. Don't think you know better because you know that person in a different context. Mm. It's so important to believe the victim. Victims, only 3% of victims lie, and that's only in cases of sexual assault. And so a victim is not gonna go to their pastor about these kinds of experiences unless they're really seeking help. So it's very critical that you believe their story to be true. And then the next step is empathize. Put yourself in their shoes. Really try to imagine what it feels like to be them. And you can't do that if you don't first believe the story to be true. Mm. The next step is validate. Validate their experience. Just say something simple like, I hear what you're saying. You have every reason to feel the way you do. And I'm so sorry you're going through that. I would be very hurt if I was experiencing the same things. It's a validation that lets the victim know you are hearing them because listening is what they really need and support. And then identify. And I raise this identification means to say something like, gosh, what you're telling me reminds me of something I witnessed in college. And I remember how upsetting it was. And so I can totally relate to what you're saying right now, but we don't, we just give it 20 seconds or so to show that we're listening. We don't do what so many people do, which is to say, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And now they hijack the conversation and they start talking about themselves. This is not the time to do that. This is the time to just touch base and let them know you're really listening. And then we ask one question, how can I help? Hmm. Let me know what I can do. And I think, um, why so many people don't believe victims is because they're afraid of what it might require of them. But usually a victim is going to ask something very simple, like, will you come with me to my attorney's office? I just need to make sure that I'm protected 
because I'm being financially abused and I need to know how to protect myself. And I'm afraid I'm too traumatized and too un not saw on solid footing right now to be able to advocate for myself. Will you come with me? Or will you meet with me once a week and go for a walk or something simple like that? I think sometimes too, you have to ask again as well, because it let's just say that the um, cause I, I've been in this situation before where, you know, you've got the primary abuse and then you've got the context that does the double abuse. And if you're in it for a while, after a while, yeah, number one, fragmented brain, you're not thinking, and you're probably very sleep deprived. Um, but also you've had reinforced experiences where you come forward, they don't do anything, you get gaslit, you keep going, you know, and sometimes you can get disillusioned further down the road so that when someone comes forward and says, how can I help? Now you're wondering, are they wanting to help or are they not? And maybe sometimes you're also feeling like maybe there's nothing that can be done as well because that's your reinforced experience. So very I'd true. just add to people like give, give offers several times. And sometimes it's like, sometimes it's little things. Like um, I have a friend who um, had faced some extended abuse and it left her very traumatized and she wasn't able to look for work. She couldn't get started because it just... It, it was too much. Um, so I just got her resume together. Um, wasn't in my field, but I figured it out. And um, from there, went with her to try to build things up. And she's doing awesome right now. Like, I'm very proud of her and just the work that she's put into it. But she just, that was her, that was her bar traumatic barrier. And sometimes, sometimes it, you never know what it could be, even making a meal or you never know how you can help. There we go. <laughs> That's such a great point, Allison, because I remember thinking, gosh, I was so sick. Like I yeah. said, I went to the hospital so many times. And if somebody just would have brought me a small bowl of soup, yeah. I would have felt loved. And I did thank goodness. I had other friends, sadly, um, they were in the secular community, which mm. is where I think many victims do find support. It's yeah. they get, they don't, um, whenever the marriage is on the line, the victim um, faces a lot of judgment because I think that churches wrongly place the institution of marriage above the well-being of the victim and children inside the marriage. They fall on this legalistic viewpoint that is that form of double abuse where you're placing value on an institution, on a legal document rather than understanding that the victim is in dire need for support and love and connection and just someone willing to walk with them. And the last step in the healing model is grieve with them. Mm. Allow a victim to grieve. So often we tell someone, oh, don't cry, or we interrupt that when really the best way you can deeply connect with someone which makes them feel valued and supported is to allow their tears to flow and to even shed a tear with them that you are so sorry for what they're losing or what they're going to lose or what they've already lost that you grieve with them. That is something that has deep value from a victim's perspective. I remember when I was trying to tell my story to my Bible study leader, I ended up coming back with an advocate to go with me. And each time I was in a heap of tears, like I'm 
leaning on my elbows in tears and there was no compassion and there was no mutual grieving. It was just very stoic and um, just anxious. She was just so anxious to do the talking that so the healing model is meant to help a victim find their voice, feel loved, feel supported without imposing, I want to say never talk down to a victim as though you know more, because you don't know more. And they've been spoken down to by so long by their abuser, that it's, that would be very triggering, we want to treat them as an equal person to ourselves, somebody not to receive advice, unless they specifically ask for something. um, Ask for advice, we want to treat them as though they are the most knowledgeable of the situation and we are their equal there to support them. Hmm. So a question on that um, in terms of supporting a victim, there are some people and you kind of touched on this a little bit that don't realize they're victims yet. Um, and I say yet um, because, you know, they'll, they'll start to notice their health declining, um, but other things just don't seem right. Uh, maybe they've internalized quite a bit, you know, well, I need to make him less angry. I need, or I need to clean the house more so that she doesn't fly off the handle and break things. But so there's a, there's a period where sometimes they don't know what's happening. Can you maybe explore that a bit? Um, that interesting time. Absolutely. I mean, for me, I didn't know it was happening. It was 15 years before I asked for a separation. I was, we were in therapy all the time up to that. We had tried three different therapists and we had the financial resources to go to top published Christian authors who are also therapists and they weren't able to identify. Nobody used the word abuse. They would say things like, well, therapy comes a mutual responsibility point of view. And so. Or for like with, you mean like marriage and family therapy, typically marriage and family therapy, and also pastoral counseling often Mm. treats the problem as though there's mutual responsibility. When if even 10% responsibility is placed on the victim, that's all that the abuser is going to focus on as though that 10% is 100% of the problem. So it's really critical to not do that just to until the abuse has been um, removed from the situation, no other problems can be resolved. And I know right now I'm not answering the question you asked me because I forget what you asked me. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah. So, you know, there's that bizarre period where, especially if there's oh, yeah, where unknown, where all they... those covert, you know, behaviors where you yes. don't know, like I know in my situation, one of my situations, it was very bizarre. Um, but I had, I, I never had a stalker or anyone obsessed with me before. And I ended up having um, a guy and a girl stalk, actually stalking me for years. And that was not my go-to, you know what I mean? And, you know, you just start to see them appearing places and think it's a coincidence. And, uh, but there's that period where you're not sure what's happening, especially when they're playing games with you. Um, but yet, you know, how can an outsider, how, okay. How can you, when you're in that situation or as an outsider looking in, be able to recognize what's happening and give assistance sooner rather than later? That's a great question. What I really think needs to happen is that we're talking about emotional abuse, that we talk about domestic violence more in whatever outlets we can to raise awareness about this. I would love to see churches 
become trained by the men project to understand it. Mm. We have a comprehensive training and then talk about abuse from the pulpit to clarify. It doesn't matter if you're an egalitarian church or a complementarian church. Abuse happens in every setting, but I do like to say that complementarian churches have even a greater responsibility to define roles and to define what is abuse and what isn't, because otherwise the, the lack of understanding of scripture by either groups within the congregation or individuals within the congregation tends to complementarianism tends to inadvertently foster abuse more than an egalitarian perspective. And I'm not, I go to a complementarian church. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that there's a greater responsibility to define what is abuse. And I wish that I would see truly educated pastors talk about this and talk about covert abuse and really emphasize the way that we are to treat mm -hmm. each other so that victims could have an aha moment. And so that abuser, probably 30% in the room is inadvertently abusing and just being told will stop. So those families, that generational cycle will be healed just by bringing it to light. And then those who are entrenched the victim will at least, the, the, the ones who are entrenched will think it has nothing to do with them. It's they're, they're going to be the last ones that think that the pastor's yeah. talking about them. Yeah, because so they're awesome. Them, <laughs> Special VIPs. Yeah. They'll say, oh, if that's that other guy or whatever. Oh, yeah. But the victim the will then woman. be alerted to that something is seriously wrong and they will feel that they have a safe place and but to, to go for help. And I think churches have an obligation. If you're offering any kind of marital counseling, you have an obligation to be trained to understand how to do this well, mm. how to identify it early, how to help a victim articulate their experience, how to help advocate for them and to not to do whatever possible to avoid causing double abuse. Mm. And then we also have um, which I know we don't have time to talk about today, but we have what's called our accountability model of courage, which helps therapists and pastors interface with an abuser or helps an accountability partner interface with an abuser and really healthy ways to confront them, healthy ways to hold them accountable and healthy ways to interact with both the victim and abuser without exacerbating the victim's trauma. That's very specific set of guidelines that will make it possible to bring the abuser towards healing much more than if you are just siding with the abuser. I mean, my husband will tell you openly now because they sided with him, it emboldened his faulty thinking. Yeah. And so it made matters even worse for me. And he felt even more self-righteous in the yeah. situation. And the abuser or the, the abused is the one that's going to be um, exhibiting the outward signs of trauma. And they're going to be the ones that are possibly complaining. So they're going to be kind of forced to stick out like a sore thumb while the abuser gets to sit tight and keep, you know, doing whatever it is he's Stay doing. Calm, cool and collected while the victim is fragmented in their thinking, can't remember all the details, yeah. is crying one minute, is really angry and frustrated the next so it doesn't start out that way. It doesn't start out that way. Like, no, it doesn't. But that's trauma. It becomes a rationalization though. Oh, they're just emotional. 
<laughs> and that's, and that yeah. we see that in a gender specific way often yeah. where the woman is usually more emotionally in touch than mm. the male, but the woman gets blamed for being hyper emotional and too emotional or whatever you want to call it. And in fact, they're more in touch with their emotions and they're trying to express their healthy emotions and the emotions that are being um, minimized and traumatized. And it just gets misinterpreted by those that are not really understanding the symptoms of trauma and, or who don't have a high emotional IQ themselves. Yeah. I found too, that even if you're not very like emotional, quote, emotional or I don't know, lively, uh, sometimes it, or in, especially with, um, kind of a gender discrimination or gender stereotyping, they will make you out to be the emotional one just for complaining or drawing something to their attention. Very true. Um, yeah. So, Oh, okay. So in order to, and I, I, maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about the more about the accountability model. Cause I think that would be good for a lot of people to realize here's the steps you got to take, like, you know, um, yes, victims want to be listened to, but they don't want to quote, you know, feel heard. They want to actually be heard. And that means sometimes if you're a leader in an organization, you got to stop the abuse. You got to stop the harassment. You got to stop whatever it is. Um, sorry, you know, but you got it. That, you're a leader. That's part and of being I, a, a I leader. I want to say that on that point, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're bringing up a, a point. Um, family, friends, and the church has a greater ability mm, to influence an abuser than judges, lawyers, police yeah. officers, and all of those other first responders combined. You have this ability to influence and push up against their faulty belief system and their image management and their entitlement. You have the ability to do this. And so yeah. hopefully I'd love to come back and talk more about, talk more about that because- yeah if we can influence an abuser to change and truly help a marriage heal, that would, that's the ultimate outcome of a situation like this. Yeah, for sure. And part of this like too touches on um, what we're, what we've been talking about a, a bit um, in order, people have to actually want to do this. And we do have a, a culture that thinks in terms of liability in the church and it's, it's a very unchristian concept, um, but um, really, again, I, I'm going to say this, like most victims are not too happy. They, they just want abuse, or if you're in an organization, they just want the abuse to stop. They just want to be left alone, usually, or, and that doesn't mean- Or save um, their marriage. They're looking yeah, or save for their marriage. marriage. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're not, you know, a lot of these people, like, again, they're very empathetic. Um, they've put up with this for a very long time, and- right. Um, especially if they're coming to you, they're looking to you to help, you know, they're not looking to entrap you. Um, like you said, like, there's maybe 3% that are the false, the false claims in the first place. Most people know, I mean, most people intuitively know that things will not go well for them if they complain. Um, that's why they sometimes put it off for quite a while. And they're um, protecting their spouse, because they, yeah, they, they love yeah. their spouse, and they don't have clarity about what's happening and they don't, they, they are a vault, like a bank vault protecting their spouse for years. So yeah. when they finally come forward, it's a really big step of courage and vulnerability. 
And yeah. yes, yeah, we, it's a How do we change from like this liability thinking to actually being proactive, being the church, being what um, Jesus called to us, called us to be, not people that are power seeking, um, image, uh, image seeking people that aren't just saying ends justify the means, you know, and I mean that, you know, come on, like, look at what Jesus said. You're not going to preserve Jesus's teachings by, you know, just trying to silence people and making this situation go away. Like, how, how do we, how, do, how does a, how does a system or, um, and it, we don't just have a system. We have people that are part of this system. How do we have key members in leadership and not just like formally, but informally switch their thinking from liability to actually being agents of change and healing? I, I, Angels of the kingdom. To, I don't mean to plug what we do, but do it, do it. <laughs> um, time to plug. We, we try to approach each per we, when we train a church, we like to train small group leaders, staff, elders, and all pastors on staff so that the culture of the church changes so that they become aware and really understand how prevalent abuse is. One in four women are experiencing domestic violence and one in seven men. It is an epidemic. It might not be physical violence, but it will at least be emotional abuse, which we've already said is more damaging in most cases other than life-threatening battery is more damaging than um, other forms of physical abuse. And so it's something that we have an obligation, a moral obligation to understand. And I think if churches would take a posture of being willing to lift up the rug and look underneath instead of sweeping it under the rug and not wanting to know, I've had pastors tell me, um, honestly, we just, we know we don't know about it, but we honestly are afraid to open the floodgates. We, we know so little that we think it's going to be too overwhelming. I mm. promise you, it is not too overwhelming. You will feel equipped and you will feel capable and confident to be able to interface with both a victim and abuser if you go through our training. It will take such a, it will lighten your load instead of increasing the burden and you will feel confident to be able to talk about the, the, the topic and educate congregants and bring healing to so many families. If you could leave maybe listeners out there with um, just maybe just three points on how to bring accountability to someone who is abusive and we'll maybe have you back on to elaborate more or people, I, I would really strongly encourage them to go to your website. Um, but what are, what are just three things, distilled points that you would like them to like to leave folks on what they can do? You know how it's just human nature to not really want to confront somebody. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It requires a lot from us. That's why we call it our accountability model of courage. I would say you want to help the abuser face what they're doing is wrong. And that means you have to face yourself to have the courage to take, to, uh, take that step in the exercise. You want to help them own it, not just, I'm sorry, I'm, yeah, I know I did that, I'm sorry, and brush it off, but to really sit with what they did, the damage that it causes, and make reparations, mm. to, immediate reparations to correct the situation not to postpone reparations, but to follow through. You want to be a resource to them. Be someone who is willing 
to learn how to speak with the victim and hear the victim's um, accounts of what are occurring and then also step back and hold the abuser accountable. But I like to say the qualifier, you can't play neutral or you, if, the, if the abuser continues to act out in abusive ways, you need to hold a boundary I mean, we have several steps in this that we're not going to, I don't have time to go no. into today. I know you don't, but we hold them accountable and we match words with actions. We say, you said you were going to stop doing this and you did it again. I can't be in accountability relationship with you as long as you are going to continue behaving this way with your spouse, because then I would be colluding in abuse and I won't play that role. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help you take accountability and be responsible and to stop. But as long as you aren't taking it seriously, I need to step away. I'll pray for you. I love you. I'm there for you when you want to step back into this and take it seriously, but you're not going to be a tool for the abuser. You're not yeah. going to collude. So it's, it's not loving and it's not right. <laughs> Pardon me? Not loving and it's not right. That's right. It's not loving. It doesn't love the abuser and it doesn't love the victim. And so we have several more steps about how to do these things that are really rather simple, but it helps clarify exactly where you might accidentally be teetering over into doubly abusing or traumatizing the victim um, and enabling or allowing justifications by the abuser. So it just provides really clear lines about how to do that. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for being here and thanks for um, helping us out in this huge way. Um, it's, it's so, it's so much needed in the church right now. And um, your work definitely encourages Nick and I, and, and I, I mean, I'd like, I'd, I'd like folks to realize too, that, you know, it's the yeah the church you know is struggling in many ways but the church is also what Annette's doing and the church is also what Rachel Den Hollander's been doing and um, there, there's a lot more voices out there than just um, these organizations and individuals that want to preserve power at all costs. So true. We have such. We should be leading the way um, for domestic violence victims and for all victims yeah. because that we would be bringing people to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus Christ. We have that power to do that. And when we don't do that, we alienate people from the church. So I see this as such an opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. I would love it if um, your listeners would go to our website, themendproject.com. We have lots of tools and resources that are free, downloadable in PDF form so that when you're talking with someone, you can actually help them describe their experiences or you can know how to interface with them. And then you can sign up for our comprehensive training. It's a seven session training that we offer to churches and to therapy groups and to other first responders. And we'd love to have you. Yeah. And their handouts are really great. Uh, there's a whole list on covert abuse, like a giant list. And again, it's not just like one or two things. They say a name and I don't like being called that name. Um, it's, it's fairly comprehensive and these um, handouts are fairly beautiful too um, as well. So I, you know, we try, to, you provide, we try to provide tools um, 
so that when someone has gone through a training, they have tangible tools to take with them. So, so often we go to conferences and then we can't remember, you know, 70% of what we learned. We were taking notes. We try to make really good visual aids to help um, retain the information really well. That's Wonderful. something we work hard at. All right. Well, thanks again. And we're going to just maybe have to have you on, back on soon. Thank you so much, Allison. And thank you, Nick. For sure. Uh, he, Nick is attending to the baby. Who